This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome to the Santita Jackson Show, WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station. It is a joy and honor, a blessing, a gift to be with you today in this the holy season. We've got a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking about the UN uh, and America's pushback against the ceasefire agreement. It's America, Israel against the world. Will that work? We're also going to talk about the reason for the season. You know, many of us, uh, of course, uh, to be broad and to be embracing, and we should be. Say happy holidays as we secularize Christmas, but let's, let us remember first, it is a religious holiday. Christians have two high holy days in our calendar, which is Easter, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and his birth. So let's talk about this Palestinian Jew, this person who embodied all that is in conflict in the world and why he is so relevant today. He was a refugee. He was living under the viaduct. He can't, there was no room for him in the end. He could not, his parents couldn't get affordable housing. His parents were trying to save him from an oppressive uh, colonizer. And on and on and on and on it goes. It's a story that has so much resonance today that I think we need to talk about it. And then let's talk about Dr. Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, at least that's what she is as of this morning. Uh, embattled. She and the president of UPenn and MIT testified before Congress discussing how they've handled anti-Semitism on the campus. But the UPenn president had to resign and she's gone off and, and into relative anonymity and she'll be able to go on with her life fairly intact. But Claudine Gay, while she's been allowed to hold that seat, it's not quite the same thing. Indeed, her academic credentials are being attacked. Getting a PhD is no easy thing, everybody. You have to be admitted to the program, and so you're thoroughly vetted there. Then you have to decide what you're going to pursue your PhD in. You have to narrow the focus, and that has to be cleared. Then you get an advisor who basically is your editor who tells you what to leave in, what to leave out of this dissertation, which is really a book. And then you present it to a committee who've read the dissertation, who've combed it, and, who, and you have to defend it against them. You really literally go into a courtroom and you have to defend it. So how is it that after all of this, now her academic credentials are being questioned? Hmm. Thank you, Arsenio Hall. Things that make you go, hmm. So we've got a lot to talk about today. But I want to hear what you think the big story of the year has been. Oh, boy, what a year this has been. I want to know just what's on your mind for 2022. I mean, 2023, this year moves like that. And 2024, what you expect for 2024. Big election year, so much is going on. And I am so glad that you are with us today. Let's grab some of these headlines so we can get this good word from this great woman of God, Pastor Tisha Dixon Williams, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Bridgehampton, New York. The death toll in Gaza has surpassed 
20,000 people, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. They also said over 53,000 people have been wounded in the war, which began after Hamas militants, the governing body of Gaza, killed about 1,200 people in Israel on October 7th. Israel's campaign has killed almost 1 in 100 people in the Strip. Wow. The number of deaths is far higher than any conflict in Gaza in recent history. And as we reported earlier this week, there are already plans to turn uh, the soon-to-be-completely-level Gaza Strip into um, a luxury beachfront community. Mm. 14 people were killed in a shooting at a university in Prague. Wow, God bless them, everybody. The Czech capital. The 24-year-old gunman died around, and around 25 others were injured in this attack on Charles University in the capital yesterday. Yesterday's attack was one of the worst mass killings in Europe in nearly a decade. Praying for our brothers and sisters in Prague. Rudy Giuliani failed, filed for bankruptcy protection yesterday. What do you think about this, everybody? It came after the former Trump attorney, America's mayor, former U.S. attorney, was ordered to immediately pay $148 million to two Georgia women he falsely accused of trying to help steal the 2020 election. He also defamed their characters, everybody. Going bankrupt would not get former Mayor Giuliani, out of paying legal experts say, but he may attempt to appeal the case, which could delay payment or lead to a settlement. Colon cancer is rising in young Americans. While people under 55 made up 20% of all colorectal cancer cases in 2019, up from just 11% in 1995. No one knows what's driving this for sure. But rising obesity rates, highly processed foods, and lack of exercise could all be contributing to this medical mystery. And those are some of the headlines on the Santita Jackson Show. Everybody, Pastor Tisha Dixon-Williams, what a year it has been. God is so merciful. God is so good. You are here, and you are giving the good news, finding the good news even. And you, you know, our healers are wounded, always. Yes. And yet, God continues to use you and maybe use you most profoundly in those moments when you need healing yourself. So I just want you to know on behalf of the Santita Jackson Show and the Santita Jackson Show Morningstar family, uh, of which you are a part, a central part. We love you, we pray for you, and we keep you lifted up today. Um, as your father rejoices from heaven, looking at his daughter and all the great things that you are doing in God, a leading soldier in God's army. God bless you, my sister. Oh, my goodness. God bless you. Thank you so much for that. It is always a joy to join you. It has been, as you said, quite a year. Uh, I think I said this already. I've been calling 2023, 2023. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know how you the, feel. Yeah, we're <laughs> almost at the tail end. And as we say, I wouldn't take nothing for the journey now. But as you said, it's been a quite interesting uh, tough year for sure. But I'm so grateful for the space and the platform and the time that you give me on Fridays to be able to share. So thank you. And God bless you. Thank you for your gift and thank you for sharing it with the world. I love you too. So today I wanted to share with you a very different perspective on the gospel message. <laughs> 
And I'm inspired by the game of Monopoly. You know, when it comes to Christmas time, there are going to be family gatherings and families are going to be coming together to play games. They're going to be gathered around the table, food, snacks, playing games. And one of the most popular games we play as a family, whether it means we're going to fight <laughs> or have fun, is Monopoly. And in the game of Monopoly, you know, the objective is to acquire wealth and properties. And the objective is to collect as much money and as many assets as possible, hoping to become the wealthiest player by the end of the game. But what if I told you that I feel like there's a hidden, deeper spiritual truth within that simple game? First, I want you to consider the concept of pass and go. We are coming to the end of 2023 and about to pass into 2024. And in Monopoly, when we pass go, we receive a reward, a fresh start, an opportunity to continue our journey around the board. And just like our our Monopoly game, Monopoly life, in our spiritual lives, when we accept Jesus as our Savior and we celebrate Jesus and we give our hearts to Jesus, that's what we get. We get a fresh start. The gospel according to Monopoly teaches us that through faith, we receive forgiveness, redemption, and the chance to start all over again. So just as pass and go brings excitement in the game, pass and go on our spiritual journey fills us with hope and joy, especially this time of year. But then also think about the idea of accumulating wealth and properties. In Monopoly, we, distri- we strive to make the most money and achieve the most properties. But Monopoly challenges us in terms of our spirituality, shift our focus from earthly possessions to spiritual treasures. We don't store up for ourselves treasures here on earth where they can be destroyed and moth-eaten and where thieves can break in and steal. We store for ourselves treasures in heaven where nothing can destroy it, where we can save what really matters for ourselves. We can use the gift, talents, and abilities that we've been given to be spiritual gifts to people. And so it reminds us that true wealth, just as this holiday season reminds us, is not found in the things we touch, but rather the things that touch us and the people we touch. And then Monopoly also emphasizes the principle of fair play, which is something this world needs. Fair play, integrity, and stewardship. In the game, we have to make wise decisions. We've got to know how to manage our resources. And let me tell you something. Life is the same way. We've got to be good stewards of our blessings and resources and the things that we've been entrusted with that they not, might not just be a blessing to us, but a blessing to those who are less fortunate and a blessing to those that we are called to love and to serve. We talk about the gospel of monopoly. It teaches us to keep pressing forward. You're going to have setbacks in the game. You're going to have to pay more than you have in the game. You're going to have challenges, and such is life. We are going to face setbacks. We're going to have to pause for a little while. Some of us might find ourselves in prison for a little bit, but don't lose heart. Keep going. Keep pressing. Keep trying. Eventually, you'll pass go again, and you'll have a fresh start. So I just want to encourage somebody today that as we gather around tables, that we gather in family uh, fun You might feel like even in that moment, you're in jeopardy, not monopoly, (laughs) but that your lives are in jeopardy. I just want to remind you today that you can have it all. You can acquire it all. You can have a fresh start, even if it means having setbacks. But eventually, you will pass go again. Happy holidays, everyone. Merry Christmas and a happy new year. I love you. Only you. Only you. Pastor Stevenson and I were talking about I said, she is such a gift. He said, you know, 
she takes the text and helps you to see it in a whole different way. Okay, and thank you for that. So before the fight breaks so out on the table, everybody, before y'all jump across the table, it. because that's going to happen, too. That is going to happen. <laughs> that's going to happen, too. You're going to walk to somebody. going to walk out of that room and shout, and it's just one, two, three. Listen, Listen, it happened. Come on, we now. wouldn't be family if it didn't happen. <laughs> Look, I know how we walk out and go, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Did you just say that? Do you really mean that? What? You're right. <laughs> oh, right. my gosh. It's a blessing. But you're a blessing. You're a gift That's more blessing. than that. As I you. thank you. Oh, thank you so much. God bless you. God bless you. God Pastor bless Tisha you. Dixon Williams. Everybody, I see you, sis, is a book that you need to get. To give yes. to someone as a blessing today, go to Amazon. I see you, sis. I see you, sis. Get that book today. You just might see yourself today. You just might see someone uh, and see yourself with fresh eyes. And I would say <laughs> men get it, too. How about that? Ooh, That's yeah, for sure. sure. I said it. Love you. Love and you how too. can we worship with you? Are you going to be doing any? Yes. Special services during the holiday? We are just doing our normal services, but you can worship with us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on YouTube. Make sure to like and subscribe at 11 a.m. First Baptist Church of Bridgehampton, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on YouTube. Love you, Pastor Tisha Dixon Williams. God bless love you. Love you too, Santita. God bless you and much love to you and the entire family. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, everybody, we've got Dr. Shanina Knighton with us today. What a blessing, what a gift she is. She makes us not want to touch anything else, Pastor Tisha Dixon-Williams, not in- including each other. How you doing, Dr. Knighton? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing good. How are you? Uh, just trying not to touch anybody. Just kidding. <laughs> How would you <laughs> It's great to hear your voice today. What you want to know during this holy season. And thank you. Thank you for all that you give to us every single day. Oh, thank you. Like, thank you for everything that you do. I know I mention it all the time about being able to come and listen and learn, you know, on a platform that's able to give a balanced view. That's not coming, you know, biased, that doesn't seem sold, you know, in a climate right now where, you know, there's so much group think that's going on. So I'm very appreciative and refreshed um, to be able to know that there is a show such as the Santita Jackson Morning Show, not just because I'm able to contribute, but because I've been able to learn um, specifically about things that I don't have expertise in, but things that I need to know just as being a citizen, right? So I'm appreciative for you, and thank you for all that you do. Oh, bless your heart. Thank you. We all do this together. You tell us things that we don't know, things that we surely should know. We should know. Yeah. So what, oh my gosh, what's on your mind today? So actually, it's funny, I had something lined up, but I'm going to give you a smorgasbord of stuff within the next like four minutes because you touched upon a topic um, that I started mentioning like back in April um, of this year. And that's just about our 90s and 2000s babies. 
you know, who are at risk, you know, or showing a higher rise in colon cancer, you know. Um, And it's crazy because it's likely, you know, of course, multiple reasons. But it's more of a reason to think about what are some factors that have occurred for them that may have been different from us. And one of the biggest things, unfortunately, is going to be the smoking and the overconsumption of alcohol. Um, When you think about it, us 80s babies had programs around such as D.A.R.E., right? Like we had, you know, different mechanisms around at least sharing what the disadvantages of using drugs and alcohol are. And those preventative programs that existed even within schools Funding and stuff has been cut. You don't have physical education barely. You don't have health education barely because funding has been cut from those programs. And so I'm sure that a lot of the correlation of this generation of kids in that in that 90s and 2000s range are not being educated as they should. There's also, you know, missing of regular exercise, you know, eating the most balanced diet. And then, too, the fact that you have all of these, um, let's say, weight loss teas and, you know, mechanisms for which people will be made to go to the bathroom, and they don't understand that forcing themselves to actually go through, their body to go through, elimination can also have adverse effects as well when your body is not doing what it normally needs to do. And so I always encourage younger people to make sure that they're talking to their primary um, doctor. And if they know that someone in their family has a risk of it, and they also know that they're partaking in these lifestyle habits um, of not working out, of drinking, of smoking, of doing things that would not favorably go with their health. You know, as you mentioned, red meat also being an increased risk. That's more of a reason that they would absolutely want to um, get in contact with their primary. The other thing is, too, um, and this is switching topics, is just still around hygiene poverty. So I know that around this time of year, I kind of feel like things get a little bit overshadowed, meaning you see individuals passing out, let's say, toys. They might be passing out scarves. They might be passing out gloves. But it's also an increased time of where we're seeing people pass out toiletries. So they're like, hey, you know, let's collect deodorant. Let's collect toothbrushes. Let's collect these things that individuals need. But we don't talk about the why. And the why is the hygiene poverty. It is people's inability to be able to afford essentials. Um, Meaning that they might not be able to afford, let's say, the toilet paper, the toothbrushes. They might not be able to afford the toothpaste, the shampoo. Might not be able to afford the detergent to clean their nose. I mean, clean their clothes. Even though they might be an essential worker, you know, working in somewhere that, you know, handles high contamination of items. These are things that people don't have. And as we know, people have lost their jobs. Money can be tight around this time of year. Uh, Layoffs are often experienced, you know, when things get slow. But there are things that people don't have. And so just reminding individuals that even if your resources are limited, 
baking soda, distilled white vinegar, hydrogen peroxide, salt, rubbing alcohol. Like there's certain ingredients that even at their base can be used to make disinfectants and make things to be able to clean in your home. And so that is even too baking soda. We know people have used to clean their teeth, you know, at safe levels. And so just reminding people that, yes, while unfortunately off the shelf items that are prepackaged may be expensive, may be out of reach. Sometimes just having those essential basic items, household items in your home can go a long way when you do not have the resources to buy basic hygienic items for the body or for cleaning the environment. That's just beginning to kill the people of Gaza. They They don't even have access to water. Exactly. So it is, it is, they're saying if the bombs don't get them, the disease will. And it's not that they don't want to be clean. Please, they don't have access to water. They don't have access mm-hmm. to soap. They do not have access to electricity. So they cannot keep their food properly stored. I mean, if you just keep on going with this thing, and guess what? It happens in the United States every day. Every day. Absolutely. Yeah. Every day. Let's be mindful of that, everybody. Um, and God bless you. I love you, Dr. Shanina Knighton, the world-renowned well, Dr. Shanina Knighton. I'm so proud of my girl. I love it. I love it. Love her. Thank and you. Just love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. I love you, let's, let's talk about one of your colleagues, Dr. Claudine Gay. They're trying to put her out of her job. What is going on, everybody? Back with mm-hmm. more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Oh boy, we got a lot to talk about today. We've got to talk about Jesus being a refugee, a Palestinian Jew, the two groups that are in opposition to each other, he embodies. Who could make that up? And then we'll be talking with a Palestinian attorney and activist. I've met him through It's Not Now, but he's from the Council of, um, of American Islamic Relations. It's the largest Muslim American organization in the country. Uh, and I cannot wait to speak with Attorney Tariq Khalil and Dwight McKee and uh, Reverend Dr. Marshall Hatchett, Mark Sancher, about Jesus being the reason for the season. As we look at the secularized version of the holiday, let's also look at the reason for the season. Let's look at that. It's something, whether you're in or out of faith, that I think you can be blessed by today. Let's start with Ari Bloomcats. He is a member of the family. We're going to have him on regularly in 2020-24. He's the executive editor of In These Times Magazine, Dr. Rachel Ida Buff, University of Wisconsin, uh, Jewish Voice for Peace. And an academician, as we are looking at Dr. Claudine Gay, the newly minted president of Harvard, first African American woman to be first African American to be president, um, a woman with stellar credentials. Her credentials have been unquestioned, un 
till now. I have to tell you, just an editorial bit from me. When she was allowed to hold on to her position at Harvard, Dr. Julianne Malvo, you are an MIT PhD economist, president emeritus of the Bennett College for Women, chair of the board of Push Excel, uh, past dean of ethnic studies at Cal State LA. No one can question your academic credentials, or can they? First of all, tell us what are the hoops that one has to jump through to get a PhD? Can you just walk up and say, I want one? <laughs> you will work your hind parts off for a very long time. You will deal with all kinds of crazy people um, because there's there's a whole thing. A friend of mine has um, an organization called, I forget what the name of it is, but they're, they're training young women of color, especially black women, to get doctorates. And I've worked as an advisor with her organization as well as with the Black Doctoral Network whose advisory board I sit on, and I'd encourage anyone who's interested in a doctor to check them out. But they basically have painstakingly laid out the tips. First, got to get in. It's highly competitive in many fields to get into graduate school. Once you get in, you've got core, basic coursework, but you also have your highly encouraged to find a dissertation topic. Now, the choice of a dissertation topic is highly political. Oftentimes, the black uh, students are told, oh, no, nobody wants to read about that. Or can you do something that has nothing to do with race? Well, your passion, your motivation for going to graduate school, for learning more, might have been to break down some of these racial issues. Claudine's, um, Claudine, Dr. Claudine Gay's dissertation, majority minority districts, uh, congressional districts in California. I haven't read it, but I understand it's very good. Now, You've got a dissertation topic. Now you have to get a committee. Depending on what you're navigating, you could get, I mean, I ended up with one dud on my committee that cost me, I was supposed to get a June degree and said I got a September degree. Because he held up, and it's interesting, one of these very issues, he held up, he held me up on a footnote. Do you hear the outrage of my voice, Santita? What, 30 years ago? You, held up, you were held up. Wait, 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 wait. Because I want Ari, and I know... Rachel out of Buff understands this. You were held up on a footnote. Okay, a go singular, on. A single footnote, and, you know, he said there was something wrong with it. There was something wrong with it. It was so minor. I didn't know it. I had a proofreader. I mean, I had paid a sister to my dissertation. But neither here nor there. Um, but you've got, to get, you've got to get a committee. Often getting a committee is hard because, again, depending on uh, – racial, ethnic, generational makeup, you've got to find a topic and a committee that are compatible with what you want to do. I have several colleagues who didn't get the doctorate because they got one fool on their committee who just had them jumping to hoops, jumping to hoops, jumping to hoops. So now you've got the committee, you've got the topic. Now you're writing. And if you're, you're properly advised, you're giving them pieces of this as you finish it. I finish this chapter, here you go. Because you want to hear objections sooner rather than later. Okay, so now you've got the dissertation itself. It's going it's to be reviewed. They may send it out for peer review. They may not. The committee all has something to say. And part of the politics of these committees, Santita, is that they're training their competition. You see what I'm saying? There are, I, I have a young, young woman who was at a university to be unknown her advisor, who actually was an African-American woman, was only about seven or eight years younger than her. And at some point, the woman actually said to 
to my little who I had as an undergrad when I was at UC Berkeley, she said to her, well, you know, you're trying to do what I'm doing. And so I often tell people getting a doctorate is like pledging. Uh, and those who are members of the which divine nine, we have done, can, which we, we have done so not easy. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, but you know, when you pledge, if people can mess with you about anything, just because they just because they can't, and that often is the case with, um, you know, with with the with the doctor. As it turned out, with this person who held me up over a footnote, the footnote was a typo. I had hired uh, or an agency. The type by thing, I was paranoid. I wanted to get out, and I like I dotted every I, crossed every T. Well, the the woman who did it, and she did, of course, didn't do it intentionally. She changed. She used, I think it was like a seven instead of a nine. So we were looking at the journal where I got the quote from. If you went back to that journal, it wasn't there. So we had to scramble, 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 and we finally figured out what happened. But by that time. Um, I have I lost the opportunity to participate in the commencement exercises, which was fine with me, but it was but it was not fine with my mama. I mean, she was she was one mad black woman. She's like, You've been all this time and you don't get to march and no, I didn't get to march. Um but these stories are not uncommon and depending on what's going on. But I every step of the way, people are checking your stuff. So it seems to me Claudine Gay uh, was hired as a professor at Stanford University. She um, did they not vet her then? She was then hired at Harvard, and she be- eventually became the dean, I believe, of um, graduate arts and letters, dean of arts and letters or arts and sciences. Anyway, as a dean, was her work not scrutinized then? All of a sudden, she's the president, and suddenly people have found all these errors, and some of the errors are. Significant, kind of. Some of them are, you didn't put a quotation mark there. I mean, there's this woman, um, African-American woman, who's an American mm-hmm. professor at Vanderbilt, who's, who basically has demanded, of course, on Fox News, that a Dr. Gay be fired immediately to bring Harvard back to sanity. Um, it's a horrible optic, but she is a hot monkey fool who I've debated before. And find her to have. She's toxic and she doesn't like black. But again, that's neither here nor there. The bottom line point is that this entire process is a very rigorous one. When you become a president, it's rigorous. Um, And so if these errors slip between the cracks, I'm wondering about Dr. Gay's dissertation advisor. I'm wondering about her, um, the folks who hired her. I wonder why these things had never been flagged before. Uh, that that this just is highly suspect, highly political. And when have we ever seen a congressional committee? Hello, a congressional committee investigating a college president about her plagiarism. What, Rachel, Ida Boss, you're a professor. Have you ever heard of this? She's going before Congress. No, I, and what Dr. Novo was saying is exactly what I've been thinking, which is like. If we pan out a little to this whole controversy and ask ourselves, why is there a controversy about Claudine Gay at Harvard, about her presidency suddenly, right? We're at very intense 
I, I looked around last night when I was being, you know, I was going to come onto the show um, for examples of when there has been a congressional inquest of the conduct of people at universities. There are all kinds of questions all the time at a university. Stuff happens, right? But a congressional inquest. And so, you know, you know, let me tell you when there was not a congressional inquest. When Jerry Sandusky, the coach at Penn State, had 15 Hello. years of sexual assault and sexual abuse um, accusations against him, eventually, after 15 years, there was a university inquiry and a legal case. Congress never got involved, though he wound up being convicted of abusing close to 50 undergraduates and athletes, student athletes. Congress did not get involved. Right. So why is Congress involved now? And it's not about the quality of Harvard's hires or, you know, people's reputation, scholarly reputation. There's a whole, as Sakhanova pointed out, there's a whole um, hierarchy devoted to scrutinizing these things. This gets back to what you said a few minutes ago, Cynthia, that there's, there's this horrible genocide taking place in Israel, Palestine. Israel is committing genocide of Palestinians and People who talk about it at all are going to get in trouble. This is really about McCarthyism. And suddenly Congress mm-hmm. wants, wants to reach into our universities and say, you know, well, well, we're not sure about that one. And, of course, all the people in the original inquest, all the university presidents were women. And now they've gone after Claudine Gay, the first black woman to be president of Harvard. Like, there's a pattern here about who gets to speak and whose lives are valuable and who should not be speaking and whose lives are not valuable. You know, the framing, the initial congressional inquest of Dr. Gay was about her very, very mild toleration for student activism and free speech on campus at Harvard. You know, and so they were coming after her for what, what gets called now in the press. Did she support genocide? This woman has had to apologize for saying that she thought student groups could say things like the very popular, very contested slogan, from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. This happened at a much lower level on my campus. Fortunately, no one's lost their jobs. My, the administration at EWM, I have to say, has been quite sensible about not repressing student protest around this issue. But very early on, there were... Um, Jewish students and orgs on campus concerned about that same slogan from the river to the sea, right? For Palestinians and their advocates, this is an aspirational slogan, like from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. Poetry works this way, right? It's beautiful. You can kind of see it. It's, it's, it makes you feel good, like freedom. But it has been taken to mean the ethnic cleansing of the historic lands of historic Palestine of Jews. No one I know who says this is thinking about killing Jews. It doesn't mean to most of us killing Jews. It means an aspiration of, a, of an oppressed people to freedom. I don't know when that began to be called genocide or merit a congressional inquest, but we're at a very dangerous place in terms of civil liberties, freedom of speech, and even academic freedom here, when, when can, Congress can have an inquest of these university presidents. And, you know, I have to say, like, I wish that they had put up a slightly better defense. They were all, the three of them 
you know, obviously had been given lawyerly advice, don't, don't go with, don't go against this notion that from the river to the sea is genocide. It is not. There has been a lot of writing done lately. The river from the river to the sea is a phrase that means different things to different people. That's what language does. But suddenly, and we see this in periods of pronounced repression, it narrows. And suddenly there's crimes if you can't say these words and you can't hang out with these people. That is McCarthyism. That's where we are. And the reason for McCarthyism is always, is always to suppress grassroots movements. It was true that way in the 50s. The FBI started looking into Dr. King as, as when he was very young because they wanted some dirt on him. And I guess what I think about this kind of thing, if you, if you really want dirt on somebody, you know, like one of the accusations against Gay is that she, missed, she directly took the sense of someone else's dissertation acknowledgments in her dissertation acknowledgments. You know, another word for that is influence. Right? We're all influenced by other scholars. And I have to tell you this when I was writing the acknowledgments for my last book, I missed two meetings. I was kind of in a trance of thinking of all the people who'd helped me. I was writing and writing. You know, like this is not this is not a crime against humanity. This is a question of her phrasing seems to be a lot like someone else's. If you go after someone in that kind of detail, if you're if you're looking to get them as the people who are hounding for Claudia and Gabe, Resignation. If they're looking to get you, they will find something. There's some peccadillo in your personal life. There's some some typo in your footnotes. There's some crime of attribution. You know, like there's going to be something. The broader question is, why are they looking? Are we blue cats? Just step back as a journalist and help me to see what we should be reading in the New York Times, you know, because that's how most of us get our news. But we need to be going to end these times. We need to be going to Democracy Now!, the Santee Jackson Show, Roland Martin Show, Robert Patel Show, all these other shows, so you can read between the lines here. What are we looking at, Ari? Well, good morning, uh, y'all. I'm uh, really honored to be on the show uh, this morning. You know, a couple of things that I'm thinking about this morning, you know, one of which is, you know, most of this censorship, repression, congressional hearings, the uh, city council meetings, and all of this, you know, are largely targeting people of color. And we're seeing it across the country that the right wing is, you know, really using this moment to go after people of color and people of color who are in influential positions. Here in Chicago, we saw this again. Uh, older person, uh, Rosanna um, Rodriguez uh, Sanchez here. Um, we saw it against uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa here as well. And we're really seeing it across the country that people of color are being systematically targeted um, really in any place where they hold any positions of influence or power. Um, right-wingers are using this moment to really pounce on it. And I think, you know, another thing that I've been thinking about here, taking a, just a slight step back as well, is the question of why, you know, there has been so much focus and debate and action and, you know, fraudness over in academia right now, right? So why is this the battleground in so many ways that the right wing wants to shift the overall conversation um, about anti-Semitism, about Islamophobia, and about Gaza? And the reason they want to shift that is because we just passed 20,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza. We now have more children killed in Gaza than all Israeli citizens uh, uh, killed in um, conflict since 1948. 
uh, by some estimates, were around 10,000 dead children, uh, dead Palestinian children right now. And if the terms of the debate, if the battleground of public discourse right now is at all on all of the consistent and persisting Israeli war crimes that are happening right now, then that's not a winning proposition for the right wing in America. That's not a winning proposition for the Israeli right wing either. They have to shift the debate and the battleground to somewhere else. They have to try and get the public engrossed in all these things. And that's partly why I think we see these things sort of like trickle out little by little and piece by piece, right? So we'll get something like, oh, there's plagiarism over here maybe in a couple lines this day. Wait, there's another claim of plagiarism over here in this. And it's all designed to suck you into something that Rebecca Vilcomerson and Dania Rajendra uh, described in an Indian Times article recently, which is this anti-Semitism feedback loop that the right wing really wants us all to be held in and engaged in. And as long as we are drawn into this anti-Semitism feedback loop, it does a number of things. And one of those things is that for many people, it abdicates them of responsibility of actually thinking about and talking about the genocide occurring in Gaza right now. And so that's one of the things that, you know, I've been thinking about this morning. And in terms of sourcing on, on things, you know, one of the better pieces I've seen recently, you know, Philip Dennis um, did a uh, great piece with uh, Democracy Now!, and I think Democracy Now! is doing some really important and critical coverage right now as well. And I think a lot of our, um, uh, a lot of our other publications, uh, a lot of folks haven't been talking about um, Mondo Weiss in this moment, but Mondo Weiss is doing mm-hmm. some really um, tremendous and, and heroic coverage right now as well, um, along with a whole host of left-wing outlets um, that are largely run uh, by people of color, um, and many are Palestinian-led or have large Palestinian staffs as well. Well, you know, I mean, your analysis is so keen. Um, Dr. Malvo, I know you're quite warm, you and Rachel and Ari. Uh, it's just really given us a whole different view of this thing. But I just want to know from you, um, in about a minute, Rachel, going forward, what should we be looking for? And then I want you to focus out, Dr. Malvo. One minute for you, Rachel. What, we, what should we be looking for in general? Yes. Yes, I mean because okay. this is. So I guess I, I, I always felt that they, I felt that the story was not over when they said she was going to keep her job. I said number one, she's going to be politically ineffective. They have they are gutting her, and I expected this. Dr. Malvo and our close personal friend, she said, "Did you really expect this?" I said, "Are you joking?" Of course, this is so political. You know this better than anyone. She helped to help to informally advise my sister when she got her PhD. Same thing, Rachel. Yeah, I, I think um, I think that these things come together. So the assault against Claudine Gay is about assaulting an African American woman who is, you know, come, come into a position of power and influence. And let's frame that more broadly in the ongoing attack on diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at the mm-hmm. university, and, and Dr. Gray had really been a leader in rethinking how Harvard could be differently inclusive and differently responsive, particularly to its students and staff and faculty of color, right? So this is kind of a key for, for the right. On the one hand, they get to, like, reach their hands into the conduct of universities, 
you know, there's a war in my state, in Wisconsin, uh, two weeks ago. You know, the, the state legislature, which is right-wing controlled because of gerrymandering, have been holding up very minimal raises for faculty and staff at the University of Wisconsin. And Speaker of the House, Robin Boss, managed, exact, managed exact to compromise. He said, okay, reverse diversity, equity, and inclusion. Give us a chair in conservative political thought at Madison. Eliminate targets of opportunity hires at Madison. Again, the flagship. So we're talking about fewer people of color and less influence of um, people of color-oriented programs. And we'll give you the raise. And this passed. The Board of Regents passed it because there's been an assault on the universities for a long time and a renewed assault against DEI, which is payback for the huge beautiful mobilizations of 2020, the George Floyd moment, which was, a, you know, the moment of racial reckoning. We hear all this stuff about it. Do not think for a moment that that exists in a vacuum and that the right wing has not been dying to get revenge. And, and you know, what Ari was talking about in the anti-Semitism feedback loop, this is a twofer. They get to have this, like, dog and pony show. You know, she's been criminal sure. plagiarism. She's incompetent. Harvard doesn't know what it's doing. You know, an African-American woman is president, and she never should have been. You know, if you read, if you Google, which I don't recommend, Claudine Gay right now, you get crazy stuff about this is the DEI manufactured, blah, blah, blah. This is an assault against people of color at the university. It's an assault against the university, and it has the advantage of obscuring the Holocaust Israel is perpetrating in, in Gaza right now. You know, Ari, Ari talked about the, the deaths of children. Over 20,000 people died. Hospitals and grade schools targeted. And, you know, instead we're like, oh, did, did she, what was Hitler 17 like? Is this really what we're supposed to be talking about right now? Mm-hmm. I'm, on the other side, Dr. Malvo, I want you to give a closing thought. But, I mean, you all have been, I mean, hearing your passion, knowing that you all really understand the system, knowing that Ari really understands how this is being covered, I think this is so important. And we're, we're going to be talking about this in 2024, but I could not let this go. Could not let this Dr. Malvo. I know you got to go, but I need you to give a closing thought on the other side. On the other side, we're going to talk about Jesus, the Palestinian Jew who was a refugee. Only God could put all of these people, these warring factions, in one person. <laughs> Let's talk about the reason for the season. Back in just a minute on the San Peter Jackson Show. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. Blessings to you in this holy season. Let's talk about Jesus being the reason for the season. It's a secularized holy season, no question about it. But this is also... At the center of the Christian calendar, it's important for us to remember this Christmas is a religious holiday, and there are reasons for that, and we're going to talk about that very shortly. I mean, I am all with happy holidays and and all of that. I think that that is important to include. That having been said, you have to remember the reason for the season. You have to remember that. And we're going to talk about this man who embodied the wars that we're in today. He was Palestinian. He was Jew. He was refugee. He was living up under the viaduct. He couldn't get a good hotel room. He couldn't get into a hotel. They said, no, you know, go out there in, in the parking lot. No, you know, no, no, further back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right up there where the trash is. And then you can have the baby over there because we don't have room over here. That 
who he was. Does that sound familiar to you? And then, of course, we're going to have a Palestinian-American activist, attorney Tariq Khalil, from the Council on Arab-American Relations. It's the largest Muslim-American organization in the country. And he's going to talk to us about the U.N. Why is America pushing against the ceasefire resolution. What's the deal? But we had to keep Dr. Malvo over just for a second because we've been talking about Dr. Claudine Gay uh, from Harvard University and, uh, and just how her reputation is being savaged. We're going to get a closing thought from her, but Pam has also called in. So let's get in some of these headlines so we can pivot, pivot, pivot. We're moving the day real fast, but it's important that we do that. The death toll in Gaza, according to these headlines from the Washington Post, has surpassed 20,000 people, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. 53,000 people more have been wounded in this war, which began after October 7th, when Hamas killed about 1,200 people in Israel. Mm. 14 people were killed in a shooting in the Czech capital of Prague at the university, Charles University, in Prague, praying for our brothers and sisters in Czechoslovakia. Rudy Giuliani filed for bankruptcy protection yesterday. It came after the former Trump attorney, America's mayor. He also led a riot on David Dinkins when he was mayor of New York, and he was U.S. attorney, and it was a riot of police. You should remember this, everybody, in which they called him the N-word. It was racialized. It was awful. He was also America's mayor. Well, he is now supposed to pay $148 million to these two uh, Georgia women he falsely accused of trying to help steal the 2020 election, but now he's bankrupt. Will he be held liable? We will see colon cancer, as Dr. Janina Knighton told us uh, at the top of the show, is rising in young Americans. There are many reasons for that. Please keep those in mind. Go to the Santita Jackson, uh, WCPT820.com forward slash Santita Jackson.com, and so that you can hear uh, Dr. Janina Knighton as she talked about that today. Chicago, 40. Three degrees cloudy. Minneapolis, St. Paul, 44 degrees cloudy. In the NFL, the Rams, 30. The Saints, 22. In the NBA, the Bulls, 114. The Spurs, 95. The Timberwolves, 118. The Lakers, 111. They came to the Midwest, got a little bit of a dust up. All right. NHL, the Canadians will be facing off Chicago against Chicago in the Wild for the Canadians, three. Well, uh, Dr. Malvo, before we pivot to Reverend Dr. Marshall Hatch, brilliant theologian and pastor of the New Mount Pilgrim Missionary Baptist Church here in Chicago, as we talk about the reason for the season, attorney Mark Fancher, brilliant civil libertarian, National Conference of Black Lawyers and Civil Rights Lawyer, and Dwight McKee, brilliant sociologist. I wanted to get your closing thoughts. We're going to revisit um, the struggles, I think, that women in academia face and that black women in particular face because Dr. Claudine Gay, I think people need to understand how her reputation is being savaged. Absolutely savaged. That She has become a symbol of DEI, which, as you know, there's been resistance to DEI, to ethnic studies, to teaching about race. So she's become a symbol of that because she talks about how to basically change the way that Harvard valued certain aspects of education. So they're mad about that, but they're not going to say that. They're going to say she plagiarized. They're going to say that she uh, is anti-Semitic. So that's A. It's a resistance against DEI. The second thing that is really important to understand is, and I think a previous sister on the uh, break said, you know, when you start talking about this conflict in the Middle East, it's like kryptonite. 
You put your hand on it, or Superman put his hand on kryptonite, and he was gone. You put your hand on this, you know, you, you are gone. You, you are suddenly being labeled anti-Semitic. Well, you are nothing but of that. You are labeled anti-Semitic because you simply say that people, human beings, Palestinian human beings have a right to exist. Israel wants to talk about their right to exist, but what about Palestinian people? And what about this history of their land encroachment? And, you know, some of the terms that, as a previous sister said about from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What does that mean? I mean, I think about that in the context of my own uh, blabbermouth and trouble I've gotten into, but I would have been put out of school when I put off the pig on my dormitory door. It was, okay, you're threatening white people. Um, you know, or you threaten police officers. So people use rhetoric for various reasons and to basically make rhetoric from the river to the sea or even intifada, which really means resistance. It doesn't mean kill Jews, it means resist. And why wouldn't Palestinians resist Israeli encroachment into their land, pinning them like hogs into this very small space, Gaza, two million people, because Israel has taken people's land. So I think Dr. Gay is spot on. I think it's just unfortunate that given our climate, a year ago this wouldn't be an issue. Given the climate, yeah. uh, in terms of October 7th, it's now an issue. And black women who are listening, women, academic women who are listening, and men, all of us, we need to rally around this woman to make sure that when this is over with, and believe me, it will be over with. Harvard is standing by her now, but it won't stand by her indefinitely because she can't fundraise, and that's her main job. So if she can't fundraise, she's ineffective as a president. And so people need and to rally around her and make sure that she has a soft landing. And she'll have to go. And she'll have to go. Yeah. And that's important. But now the quiet part is being said out loud. This has been true for decades. It's been true for decades. Now we're seeing it, and that's a good thing. Dr. Julian Malvo. We're going to talk about this some more on the other side, because I think you need to continue to go over Dwight McKee. Did you know that she could not walk in the June um, commencement at MIT when she got her Ph.D. because of a footnote, a footnote that was disputed in her dissertation? No, I did not know. know. No, no, I mean, I didn't know. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable, unbelievable. This is what they do. So you know what? It's all right. At least now we know. How about that? How about that? We love you, Dr. Malvo. Love you back. Y'all have a great rest of the show and a happy holidays. Oh, absolutely. And and not a happy holidays, a Merry Christmas. A Merry Christmas because you got to keep the Christ in Christmas. I'm glad you're doing this. And I hope you also talk about the, uh, what I call the uh, capitalist orgy. That's replaced the um, meaning of the season. Well, you know, just there, Hamid Dabashi, who is the Kavorkian professor of Iranian studies and comparative literature at Columbia University, has a very interesting piece. And it's something maybe because I also come from not just a religious household. My father is a trained minister. My father is a seminarian from the University of Chicago. And so... The Christmas holiday was a holy day in our home. After the ages of 12, no one got Christmas gifts per se, because my mother said, it is, this is a religious holiday, and we will treat it as such. We went to the jails, we served food, we put Jesus at the center of the holiday. 
This piece is entitled, Remember, Christ was a Palestinian refugee. And when the angel said, O Mary, indeed Allah gives you good tidings of a word from him whose name will be the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, distinguished in this world and the hereafter and among those brought near to Allah. That's from the Quran. He said there's something beautifully sacred about the moment in the Quran when the angels inform Mary she is about to give birth to Jesus. Angels bring her the good news. They tell her how he will speak to the people in the cradle and in maturity and will be of the righteous. Now, that's a Muslim perspective. How many of you knew that Jesus was from Palestine, that Jesus was Jewish, Jesus was a refugee? How many of you knew that? I'm going to get some closing, I'm going to get some thoughts from Reverend Dr. Marshall Hatch, who is a theologian and pastor, New Mount Milcom, New Mount Pilgrim Missionary Baptist Church here in Chicago. Dwight McKee, who always puts his religious training at the center of all that he does in uh, the human rights and civil rights movement. And, of course, Attorney Mark Fancher, who puts it in the middle of his legal life and just his whole life. And I just said, these persons I've got to bring here. Reverend Dr. Marshall Hatch, why don't you start us off? I mean, many people, if they hear that Jesus was a Palestinian Jew, they pass out. Absolutely. A Palestinian Jew who, by the way, never went to Europe, uh, who lived in Palestine as, as we know it now, and who was born at the bottom of, of the Roman Empire, an occupied person. Was is the work of Howard Thurman that talks about Jesus and the disinherited. Uh, that is, Jesus is among the disinherited. This has got to be one of the most meaningful Christmases because uh, we're living in an obvious, what I call, anti-Christmas. You know, there's a part of the story in uh, Matthew's Gospel, uh, too, where Herod orders all of the boys two years old and under to be killed uh, for his own political interests. Uh, and so it is his, it is little government policy to kill children, uh, which, which, of course, it, uh, it, you know, backdrops in Exodus when Moses was born. And we often talk about how Moses survived and how Jesus survived, but we don't talk about the children who did not survive, who were killed and who even today would be under the rubble in Gaza. Gaza is the least safe place for a child on planet Earth, and it is the place the children are born. Uh, you know, the last time I was in Bethlehem, Palestinians were my tour guides because Bethlehem is in part of uh, the, what is called the Palestinian territories. Uh, Jesus is in the rubble this Christmas. And, 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 of course, I'm from the west side of Chicago, West Garfield Park. Uh, you know, I studied some years ago, deemed that West Garfield Park was the least safe neighborhood for children. And so when we think about this uh, season, this is an anti-Christmas season because it is literally children who are being killed because of the machinations of politicians. Uh, you know, uh, so, you know, th th this is a season that I think is wrought with meaning. It's not about festivity, but it's about deep reflection. Uh, it's not about just what happened then, but it's about what is happening now. And, and it's about our determination to fight for 
uh, not just a ceasefire, you know, but for justice. And so that that that's what I think launches us in this Christmas season. And it pulls us into the real reason for the season, Attorney Mark Fancher. Oh, it, it does. And um, I, I think that uh, this this Christmas in particular uh, occurs at a time uh, when we're able to reflect on just how, uh, you know, Jesus was placed into a situation that's so comparable uh, to the many who are suffering in Gaza right now. Uh, Palestine during his lifetime was occupied uh, by an empire. Uh, the Romans were uh, in, in that region uh, brutalizing, uh, extorting, uh, jailing, uh, and killing in large numbers uh, people who were indigenous to Palestine uh, for the benefit of the empire. And this sounds very familiar. Uh, Jesus was crucified, and many people associate uh, that form of death to, as something that was unique to him. But in fact, that was the method of execution that was used for everybody who opposed the empire and who, had, uh, who posed a real threat of striking serious blows against the empire uh, so that they would take rebels, uh, zealots, guerrilla fighters, those who were resisting the empire, uh, they would nail them to crosses uh, and then leave their bodies out to decay and be picked over by vultures as a lesson to the rest of the population about what they should, what they should not even contemplate doing. So little Jesus grew up watching lines of these decaying, rotting bodies being picked over by vultures uh, in, in Palestine. I mean, that was what he was born into. And it, it, it is just a, a further testament to his love for us that knowing the torture that was in store for him, that he went through it anyway, uh, you know, for, for our sake. Uh, so I think that when we, during this season, pause to celebrate his birth, we have to take into account the extent of his love. And I also think that, you know, as, as we've just heard, we have to think about who he really was. You know, I've, I've frequently done an experiment where I've asked people to close their eyes um, and then be honest with themselves uh, about what they see when I say a certain word. And I say, Jesus Christ, and I tell them, okay, lock it in, tell me what you... And they always tell me the same thing, that they see this pale-skinned, uh, very um, you know, delicate sort of a, a man with brown hair and, and blue to, to hazel eyes and a beard and all, of, all the, whole, the traditional picture. When... The fact is, he could not have looked like that. You know, he was born into that community that descended from Hebrews held in bondage in Egypt. And if you look at the paintings that the Egyptians painted of themselves and of those who served them, they all looked very different from the group of people who are Ashkenazi Jews in modern-day Israel. Uh, they were always very brown-skinned, uh, sometimes to black-skinned. Uh, and it's significant that Joseph in the Old Testament was mistaken for an Egyptian. Moses was mistaken for an Egyptian. Uh, Paul, who was a contemporary of Jesus and who was of the same ethnic stock, was mistaken as an Egyptian. Uh, and so it, it becomes pretty clear that uh, he, he probably did not look like that painting. 
But the fact that the Ashkenazi Jews who converted to Judaism, uh, which is a good thing. I mean, the Jewish faith is a pure faith. Uh, and for anybody to, to adhere to it is a wonderful thing. But for them to come into a region that's populated by the people who are the actual uh, genetic descendants of the real Semitic people uh, who Jesus was a part of, and to claim that these people have no right to the land and to drive them off by force uh, flies in the face of everything that Jesus was about, uh, which was universal love for all people. Uh, and it is a particular offense uh, during this holy season when, as they say, now more than 20,000 people have been killed. Hmm. Dwight McKee, just given your experience with Reverend Jackson, uh, goodness, Cornell West, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, we get Reverend Clay Evans, we can go on and on and on and on. How do you interpret the season, particularly now? Uh, as a schizophrenic season, a season that's called between the uh, obsession with buying things and giving presents and, and partying and and having new stuff with the spirit of the true Christ, which was a spirit of sacrifice, spirit of justice, spirit of healing, a spirit of love. And so you have a dynamic switch in between uh, the world pulling you one way with Black Friday and uh, uh, Christmas Eve and, the, and Amazon and the spirit of Christ taking you another way. That is, Jesus saying that these things are really not important. It is the spirit of brotherhood. It is the love of people. It is the commitment to one another. It is the all of us are children, fatherhood of God. That nobody is a, ch a child of a lesser God. It is that spirit that Christ prevails and tries to absorb us, us into. You know, it's very interesting that 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 uh, the Bible says that Jesus is the Word of God, the Word made flesh. And the word they use is logo, is logos, uh, which is where we can derive our word logo from. A logo is an, an, an epitome of, a representation of the larger, uh, defined and, 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 and ex exhibited with all of the characteristics and with all of the personality of the larger. It's a representation of the larger. And so Jesus is the logo of the Father. He is has all the attributes and the spirit and the personality of the Father in miniature form. And so if you understand who he is, you understand who the Father is in relationship to us. He is the logo of the Father. Hmm. Amen to that. Talk about making us think. I want you all to say right here, we've got Attorney Tarek Khalil from the Council on American Islamic Relations. And we're talking about we're talking about peace, Reverend Dr. Hatch. 
I mean, just in about 30 seconds, what do you make of the United States pushing back on the world on a ceasefire? Dr. Hatch. Well, America is, of course, at, at its core, an empire that was whose wealth was 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 garnered on slavery and plunder, and so America is morally deficient, and this is going to be an incredible strategic blunder going forward, and that will isolate America with the government of Israel as uh, hypocritical and as an outlier. Uh, for the nations that are on the planet that are coalescing together and, uh, and of course, uh, the global south, as it ascends, uh, America's power is going to diminish. And, and this, this strategic uh, mistake, this blunder, uh, is, is going to uh, hasten the, the, the uh, influence of America around the, around the, around the planet. Stay right here, everybody. Let's talk about this on the Santita Jackson Show. Um, as we talk about the reason for the season, as we talk about the goals of the season, as we really look at why we are here, how we got here, why we're here, and where we ought to go. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a few minutes. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. Yes, we've been talking about Jesus being the reason for the season. It's a religious holiday, everybody. I certainly embrace, embrace, embrace here on WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio the voice of Progressive Minnesota. And um, I want you to go to my website, SantitaJackson.com. SantitaJackson.com will continue to populate that during the holiday season. I certainly do embrace the fact that so many of these religious holidays fall at this time. I don't think that's accidental. But as a Christian, and I am not just a cultural Christian, I'm a committed one and an educated one, I'm very clear that this is a religious holiday, and not just because my father's a preacher. My father's a seminarian, uh, and my mother's a deeply religious woman. She made us look at. She made us understand that this was about the mass of Christ, and this is not your super birthday. This is Jesus's birthday. Who was he? What did he stand for? And how is it that in this time, only God could do this, Reverend Dr. Marshall Hatch, and Attorney Mark, Mark Fanchon, and, and Reverend, I mean, excuse me, and Dwight McKee, you know he's a lay pastor, Reverend, <laughs> Reverend Hatch. Only God Amen. could have, a, 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 he, only God could have um, Jesus be Palestinian, Jewish, and a refugee. <laughs> Three of the most understood and hated persons on earth today. So we have got a Palestinian-American attorney, lecturer, activist. Council on American-Islamic Relations is the largest American Muslim organization in the country. We have worked with them for years. We had Rainbow Push and Operation Push. He's a board member and education coordinator for the American Muslims for Palestine. He's also worked with the Illinois Coalition Against Torture. 
There's so much that this young man embodies, and we're so excited to have him with us today. And he's now part of the Santina Jackson family, and we're, and we're glad about it. Um, as we look at this, at this high holy day in the Christian calendar, as we look at this moment in time that is fraught with so much anxiety and pain, as we see now the number officially past 20,000 Palestinians killed by the IDF. Um, and we see the United Nations pushing very hard to condemn and end this violence. And yet the United States and Israel and America is particularly on point about not allowing this resolution to go through to end the ceasefire, to, to start a ceasefire. They tried to water it down. They, I mean, talk to me, what is going on with this ceasefire resolution in the United Nations and why is it? Why is it embraced by the world and rejected by the United States? Well, uh, first of all, I, I really want to thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it. I'll delve, I'll delve right into the question. I mean, this has been the uh, U.S. pattern, unfortunately, for decades now. Um, they've been the uh, voice against um, ending the siege in Gaza, ending the structural a racist violence imposed by the apartheid regime of Israel against the defenseless indigenous civilian Palestinian population. I mean, that's just been, that's just been the, uh, that's been the mark of uh, U.S. Uh, policy vis-a-vis Palestinians for a long time. So unfortunately, it's not surprising that, that this is happening. Now, the play on words, the, the back and forth about removing an adjective here, a verb there, etc. This is all part of the political gamesmanship to make sure that the language does not uh, impose anything um, that would lead to a ceasefire. So, I mean, right now the uh, language is centered around humanitarian aid, but the inherent contradiction of that is is really is really uh, stark here because if you want to end. Uh, excuse me, if you want to increase humanitarian aid but not call for a ceasefire, then what you're really doing is you're, you're putting a Band-Aid on the problem and you're not, you're not really resolving it. Because you're saying that aid can come in, you want aid to come in to heal those that are, that are already wounded, and then you want the bombs to continue to drop to kill more people? That, that, doesn't, say, that doesn't seem like a good strategy here. You're not, you're not going to achieve the goal of saving life. Um, you're going to kill more life. And that 20,000 number will eventually and, and unfortunately increase. But the real scandal here is that as an American, we have the utmost duty to make sure that we influence our elected officials to do what's right and actually call for a ceasefire because it is U.S.-made weapons that is being dropped on a defenseless civilian population living in the largest open-air prison in the world, in one of the most densely populated besieged ghettos in the world, $3.8 billion a year goes to this regime. And in addition to that, Biden's calling for an, for an additional $14.3 billion. I mean, this is just, it, it's, it's unbelievable as an American civic, as a citizen of this country, to have my tax dollars. You know, I'm, I'm about to work in a little bit. And I know that my tax dollars are going towards funding this, and we cannot remain complicit because, indeed, we are complicit. And I just wanted to add one more, one more point on this because now 
now we're hearing a lot of talk of um, genocide, and we're hearing backlash against that against that term. But we have to be clear that not only those that perpetrate genocide are are punishable under international law, but those that incite genocide, and we've seen many members of the media do that, those that are complicit in a genocide, which is our government, our U.S. government is complicit in this genocide. And we have to take our hands away from this. We have to, at the very bare minimum, call for a ceasefire so we can end the slaughter and the bloodshed and the genocide that's that's being waged with our tax dollars. Attorney Tarek Khalil, Council on American Islamic Relations, American Muslims of Palestine. He is... Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. You, um, I, oh, okay. I'm, I'm no longer with the Council on American Islamic Relations. I was, I was a volunteer attorney, but now I'm with uh, AMP. I just wanted to make that clear. Oh, okay, no worries. Yes. Well, we're all together, and I thank you for that. That having been said, I want to know, I mean, we're looking at a real humanitarian crisis. And, I, you know, and I want, you know, Attorney Mark Fancher and, you know, particularly given your expertise in war crimes and, and with, the, with South Africa leading uh, the charge for, for Israel to be taken to the ICC. Um, but first, you, Attorney Khalil, they're saying that if the bombs don't get the people of Gaza, this poverty hygiene crisis will. I mean, there'll be... They can't keep their food stored. There's no electricity. They have no water. They cannot bathe. It's not, I mean, they can't, when you cannot bathe, that, you can't brush your teeth. I mean, the hospital system is gone in northern Gaza. What about that? And you cannot get humanitarian aid through. What is that? It's, it's, an, it's an absolute travesty that this has, this has happened. I mean, we're... And, 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 it's, uh, I, I believe it's significant to point out that the siege and uh, collective punishment against the Palestinian people did not start October 7th. It started even before October 7th. So Palestinians in Gaza have lived under a brutal siege and blockade for 16 years, have lived under military occupation for 56 years, 75 years of forcible displacement, ethnic cleansing, etc. I mean, 80% of the population in Gaza are refugees from the 1948 area or what, it, or what became modern-day Israel. And they were denied the right to return to their homes. They're denied self-determination. They're denied the basic rights, basic minimal rights guaranteed under international law. So what, we, what we're seeing now is an, is an intensification of an already existent oppressive system against the Palestinians in Gaza. 1.9 million Palestinians displaced. Uh, uh, essentially, uh, that same amount uh, homeless, without without a home. 20,000 plus dead, 50,000 plus wounded, and the numbers continue to go. And that's not even counting those that are still under the still under the rubble. And they've been subjected to four hours of electricity a day even before October 7th. They're subject to 97% of undrinkable water, unfit for human consumption. This is a humanitarian crisis that we are causing with our tax dollars, and that's what's crucial here. I'm talking to Americans now. Americans, you need to understand 
that you can't just say, well, I don't want to, I want to be neutral. I don't want to know what's happening. Well, no, you have to know because you're involved indirectly or directly. You are involved because it is our tax dollars that's being used. It's U.S. made weapons that are being used to slaughter innocent, innocent uh, people, 7,000 of whom have been children. Or even, yeah, I think the number is 9,000 now. I'm sorry. So, I mean, we're talking about almost half of the people being killed are, are children and women. This is unacceptable. And if we truly want to claim ourselves as the beacon of democracy and human rights and rule of law, at the very least, let's call for a ceasefire so we can end this ongoing genocide. Attorney Mark Fancher, what about this pushback against the ceasefire? by the United States. I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, now it's, it goes beyond uh, the bomb. People are being literally, the disease will kill them. I mean, this, it's just, this is, this is a war crime. Attorney Mark Fancher. Well, it, it, it's more than that. It's also uh, genocide, uh, crimes against humanity, and a number of other things. But uh, the government, the United States government, is really, as I've said in the past, uh, simply the errand boy for major international corporate interests. Uh, the agenda uh, has been to preserve Israel, uh, to preserve it at all costs. Uh, and the Israeli government has not only tried to uh, do that, uh, you know, according to the orders that have been given by the empire, but now it has gone into a level where it is an expression of rage and hatred and irrational uh, kinds of killing. Uh, so the United States has been playing its role uh, by supporting all of that. But, you know, as I've also suggested, I think that it, at, at a certain point, they're going to pull back and pull away from that particular affiliation and association with Israel only because it's bad for business. Uh, for the people that give them orders, uh, to completely destroy and destabilize that region for a time, you know, for an indefinite period into the future, uh, is not compatible with what the plans are uh, for those that have real power in this world. Uh, they really do want to go in and to gentrify that region. They really do want to go in and exploit the oil. They really do want stability so that they can do the business that they want to do. And if, that, if, if supporting the current Israeli regime uh, means that that's going to be delayed too long, uh, then they will dump them uh, with, without any hesitation. And, and I think to, to hasten that, we really do have to take a cue uh, from, from Jesus. You know, there are many Christians who, who, who believe that the only thing that they need to know about Jesus is that he came, he died, he saved me, I can go to heaven now. Uh, but he spent three years uh, preaching and teaching so that he could show us how to deal with this world, how to cope with this world, and how to overcome the world. He was very specific and explicit in saying that we should not be part of the world. We shouldn't be involved in it because it is, it is so corrupt by its very nature. It is so opposed to what God wants. And we make a big mistake when we see evil in the world and we turn to the world in our efforts to try and correct that evil. For us to turn to the U.S. government and to say that we're going to work through the political process to try and stop this is an error. Jesus said so. For us to expect that we can turn to the world 
by going to the United Nations, by going to the International Criminal Court, is an error. Jesus told us that it was. And the International Criminal Court, which is supposed to deal with these kinds of things, war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, they're supposed to deal with it. But there has been a study that's been done that shows that they consistently, especially in their early, the early years of their existence, focused only on, on these kinds of crimes in Africa, to the exclusion of these kinds of crimes that were being committed by Western powers. And if you dig deeper, you find out that most of their money was coming from these Western powers that were financing it. So they were corrupt, too, in that sense. And for us to rely on that does not work. What Jesus said that we have to do is to not be a part of it. When they, when they tried to trick him into saying, you know, whether, or ask him whether we should pay taxes to the Roman Empire, he basically said, let them have what's theirs, we'll take what's ours. Uh, and he, over the long term, the, the first Christians separated from the empire. They established their own community, uh, or nation, really, because there were so many people in it. And it was socialist in its structure and, and it, the way that it managed its economy. Uh, and it had nothing to do with that. And I think that over the years, we've seen that separating from the empire is really the most effective way to go. That's what happened in South Africa when the, uh, uh, an illegal apartheid racist regime was, was brought down by people of goodwill around the world uh, coming together and saying, we're going to isolate and ostracize them. We're not going to be a part of that. And it essentially choked them off and marginalize them to the point where they collapsed. The same thing can happen with Israel, and it's beginning to happen. People around the world are beginning to recognize the fundamental injustice of Zionism. Uh, they're withdrawing from it, uh, and they're pulling away from it, and the, the knockout blow will come when people of goodwill in Israel itself, you know, those who are citizens of that, that state, our, our so-called state, come to realize that we really need a, an internal revolution. We need to get rid of this regime. We need to get rid of this philosophy or political practice of Zionism, and we need to build something new, a new reality. That's what will bring it down. Be not a part of this world. How does that yes. how does that sound to you? How does that land on your ear? I mean, just given I don't think I don't think most Americans have any idea just how dire the situation is in Gaza and the West Bank because the people in the West Bank are being killed by the settlers. They're being the settlers are being armed and they are killing them. Do you think we have a real sense of what's going on over there? Yes, and, and I I think there's a growing understanding of what is happening on the ground, and I feel like that has a has a lot to do with the rise in the social media, uh, rising, uh, rising, uh, raising people's interest in what is actually happening, and we've seen that shift. If you look at the polling data, you'll see that uh, that progressive, especially young, the younger generation have have already crossed the, the threshold. Into sympathizing more with Palestinians than with uh, than with Israel, because they're understand because they're seeing it for for what it is, and mainstream press uh, characterizations of what is happening in the, the mainstream narrative is not gaining the kind of traction it once did. 
and I believe that that is contributing to this to this uh, shift. And it's only going to grow. And I think uh, with with a little more time, the majority of Americans will realize that we should not be supporting an apartheid regime. That we should be living we should be living true to our ideals of freedom, justice, equality, and that is what I believe will uh, bring about um, an end to the structural racism, apartheid, settler colonialism that actually exists and has it has existed for for over 100 years. And that's why that's why. And I'm glad you mentioned the West Bank because this is not Israel and the Zionist movement has not been at war with the people of Gaza only. This is a war on Palestinians. And wherever they are, collective, the entire approximately 13 million group known as Palestinians, this is a war on them. Denial, denial of basic rights, subjugation and second-class citizenship and systematic oppression for the, for the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Uh, in the entrenchment of a brutal military occupation for the Palestinians living in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, where they're living under administrative law and live on and still live under a military system and are not full-fledged citizens. They are permanent residents. And the Palestinians in Gaza, who live under a brutal siege and blockade, essentially severed from the entire world. And, of course, the Palestinian diaspora, a group to which I belong, who are denied the right to return to their homes, who are denied the, the, their fundamental rights guaranteed under international law. So this is a war against Palestinians. And it's in, it's in its most brutal form in Gaza, but we should not take our eyes away from what is happening in the West Bank, which even, even though Israel propaganda tries to separate settler vigilantism, settler violence from state violence or state action, the, settler, the settlers in the West Bank are an extension of the state. They live under Israeli civil law. It is the Palestinians in the West Bank that live under military law. So there's a dual legal system that applies in the West Bank. Imagine, imagine if in Congress, a senator or a congressperson stood up and introduced a policy or a bill that said, we need a a dual legal system, one for whites and one for blacks, and make the black one more repressive, more subjugated, uh, involving more subjugation. And for the white one, make it, make it about civil law. We have that. It's called Jim Crow. Imagine if we wanted to reinstitute that here in the U.S., how we would feel about it here. But many members of our, our uh, Congress accept it there. And that's the real scandal. That's, that's the real shame. And we should not have our tax dollars to fund that kind of enterprise. Hmm. The intersectionality. I only have a couple more minutes here. Um, one for Dr. Hatch. Intersectionality. Why should African Americans, Indigenous people, why should Americans be interested in this in this struggle? Pastor Hatch, one minute. Oh, well, Dwight McKee, you tell me. You. I'm sorry, I was on questioning. Oh, oh okay, Pastor Hatch, you all one. Okay, I've got less than a minute for you. I'm sorry, Pastor Hatch. No, I, I was just going to say this is where Malcolm X was, and Dr. King, and Adam Powell, and others understanding the African American struggle as one 
with the two-thirds world, the anti-colonial movement. You know, Dr. King, of course, in his profundity, understood that. He was at the, the inauguration of Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, 1957. And so uh, th- this has been a way that we've understood globally our struggle. And, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a caveat that I, that I do want to share at some point, that, you know, all politics are local. And in West Garfield Park, it is, honestly, Palestinians have come into this country, and many of them are the shopkeepers in black communities. And there's an incredible amount of tension between the way Africans and Americans experience uh, those immigrant groups that have come in and become the shopkeepers in our community. And so it gets to a point where we have to just have one standard of justice and righteousness, uh, you know, that's, that's not, uh, that doesn't have regard to superficial things like skin color and, and then, of course, you know, even religion. Well, you know, that goes to the politics of whiteness, and that is not their fault. The Irish come, the Irish that you meet in Europe as they oppose colonialism are not the Irish you meet in the United States. The Africans you meet in Africa are not the Africans you meet here. This is the politics of the United States of America. We even had the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, tell Africans and West Indian black people that they were different from black people who were descended from American slaves. It is a real deep issue here, and we have all got to grow up in our politics and understand how we are being gained. Because we need to pull our money together to be shopkeepers in our communities. And when people come into our communities, they need to respect us. And we need to respect each other. And we need to be in solidarity with each other. Because we're all fighting over crumbs while other people are taking the whole cake. That's the real deal. So may God bless you, Tarek. I want you to come back to the show and know that you have a home here. Know that you have a home here. Know that there's... uh, Oh, absolutely. 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 30 seconds. Well, all right, that's all I need. Imperialism, colonialism, and white supremacy are part and parcel of the black experience here in the United States. These terms resonate with Palestinians. British imperialism, Zionist settler colonialism, and Jewish supremacy are subsumed in the Palestinian experience. So from an analytical framework, critiquing Israeli policy and the Israeli foundational ideology of Zionism is not foreign to the black tradition of condemning injustice and equality. It is one and the same. Indeed, Dwight continues to take us back to this British imperial project that we're still on in the United States of America, Tarek. <laughs> That's what this all is. America's business is business. It's British business. It's European business. It's Western business. Got to make a change. Remember, Jesus is the reason for the season. This Palestinian Jew who was a refugee uh, has a lot to teach us today. May God bless you, and I can't wait to be with you in 2024. I love you, everybody. God bless you. Mm-hmm.